Hello, this is Esther Provo, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 3rd issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our first article. He calls Pickering home. Why are so many others now doing so too? For Michael Lanisi, there is no place like home. And to him, that's Pickering. The 36-year-old electrician enjoys socializing with the longtime friends he grew up with and being close to his family. There's a lot of cool stuff coming here, and this condo makes sense for me, as it's close to the GO station, close to the mall, and a five-minute drive from my parents, so I can help them out, he says. He'll move from his parents' house to his first home in 2024. It's a new one-bedroom plus den condo in Universal City, a seven-tower development by Chestnut Hill Developments, south of Highway 401 near Liverpool Road. From his 17th floor suite, he'll have a view of the illuminated 250-meter Pickering Pedestrian Bridge, the longest enclosed people crossing in the world. It links condo developments such as Universal City and the GO Station, south of the 401, to amenities north of the highway. These include Pickering Town Centre and City Hall. He should be able to glimpse Lake Ontario to the south. It's a good starter. I'm a single guy and homes like my parents at a million dollars or more are out of reach, says Lanyst. Carol King and husband Bijan Payenda have lived in Pickering for 20 years. She's supportive of the new development and says most is being done appropriately as high-density projects are close to transit and Highway 401. To me, it's really exciting. I don't think people realize how much money comes into the city with these projects, she says. This is going to make Pickering a more thriving community and less of a bedroom community. She loves the waterfront walking trails and likes that the GO Transit has added 24-hour bus service direct to Pearson's Airport Terminal 1 from Pickering. GO trains run every 15 minutes to downtown Toronto, about a 35-minute trip. King believes that the new Durham Live Entertainment District, expected to create 10,000 jobs, will make the city a destination. A casino has opened there with an indoor water park, hotels, film studio, restaurant ship, a Porsche Experience Center, and more to come. The province has identified Pickering as an urban growth center and mobility hub. The city had been parked in Pickering Township until the early 70s. Until 1974, it had no downtown. It had been trying to catch up ever since, says Mayor Kevin Ash. The government sees this as an exciting place to live. Pickering's population of 110,000 is predicted to grow by 74,800 by 2041, making it Durham Region's largest municipality. Residential development is trying to keep pace. Last August alone, eight residential towers were approved, including three by Chim communities at Highway 401 Liverpool Road and five by Smart Centres at Pickering Parkway and Brock Road. Other forms of housing are rising along Kingston Road and in Seaton, a community in North Pickering. There's been a lot of discussion as to where we are going as a city, and it's been suggested there will be up to 75 residential towers coming, which is overblown, says Ash. We do support intensification, and we want development that transit supported, but we need a mix of single homes, condos, townhouses, rentals, and seniors' housing. In 2007, when Chestnut Hill Developments launched San Francisco on the Bay with three towers, 120 townhouses, and retail space south of Highway 401, residents questioned the density and others in the building industry questioned whether they'd be buyers. We as a company always looked to transit-oriented development, and this site was close to go, says Ralph Dauduca, president of Chestnut Hill. As the prices of condos in Toronto went up and spaces got smaller, we realized there was better value in a place like Pickering. 
but it took a while to convince people of the potential. Now Chestnut Hill is selling the fifth tower of seven at Universal City, the largest master plan development in Durham. The mayor says his main job is to balance the housing with new employment. Also in Ash's wish list is for Pickering to get its own hospital, and the city is in talks to bring a satellite campus of Durham College. The Pickering nuclear plant remains the largest employer. However, however, Durham Live, quote, Camden, Last Men's Bad Boys, new headquarters, and a high-tech food manufacturing facility to be developed by FGF Brands are bringing new jobs. Lanny appreciates the new development in Pickering allowed him to get into the local housing market and he'll have more options for entertainment and dining. He expects he'll walk often to the waterfront and hit Durham Live, just a short distance from his condo. I'll definitely use the restaurants, he says. When it all comes together, it will be interesting. And on to our next article. Chantal Hebert. Pierre Poivre is wasting his chance to become Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau's government has been on the defensive in the House of Commons for months. By now, fewer than one in three Canadians approves its handling of the China electoral interference file, a topic that has monopolized the federal political conversation through the first half of the year. To listen to the fewer in the House of Commons, where the opposition again this week lined up against the Liberals to demand a public inquiry on the issue, one gets the impression of an embattled government on the verge of freefall. The voting intentions picture suggests otherwise. Just this week, Allegheny poll reported that if an election were held this month, the prime minister would have a fighting chance of securing another minority government and a fourth consecutive term. Based on the poll's findings, the liberals and conservatives are virtually tied nationally, 33% to 31%, with the former holding their own in Ontario, Quebec, and even British Columbia, a province where the NDP tends to be more competitive at their expense than in other regions of the country. Looking at the regional breakdowns, Trudeau's biggest concern could be the conservative weakness in Quebec, rather than the strength of Pierre Poivre's party elsewhere. That's because the numbers there suggest that the conservatives, in fourth place at 13%, are leaking support to the Bloc Québécois. That could imperil the many francophone writings the Liberals have been winning on opposition spills over the past three elections. The fact is that since becoming leader, Polara has lost more ground in Quebec than he has gained in most other provinces. By now, it is increasingly difficult to divorce the Liberal resilience in voting intentions from a systemic failure on the part of the latest Conservative leader to score goals on the government's open net. At a time in the federal cycle when a critical mass of Canadians normally craves change, Polarez so far failing to convince swing voters that he amounts to an acceptable alternative. If that's the case, it is mostly a result of his own doing. With the help, with little or no help from the Liberals, the Conservative leader has been hard at work rebranding himself and by associationist party as a destructive force in federal politics rather than a constructive force for a better good. He has done so by using the first defining months of his tenure to burnish his image as a polarizing figure for whom all in politics is fair game, including the assassination of the characters of his opponents and critics. Opportunities to showcase himself as a prime ministerial have come and gone, every one of them sacrificed on the altar of violent partisanship. That will not have come as a surprise to those who followed his leadership campaign last year. Even within the confines of his own conservative family, 
Poliev seemed to thrive on delivering personal attacks on his leadership rivals. Respect for the public service of others apparently never comes easily or at all to this aspiring prime minister. In the process, he has undoubtedly galvanized the Chido-hating section of the conservative movement. But it is not only Canadians who were always predisposed to believe the worst of the current prime minister and vote accordingly who may have been triggered by the conservative leader's approach. If the numbers and voting intentions are not decisively moving the way of the conservatives, it may well be because Poliev is giving liberal sympathizers a rationale to stick with Trudeau for yet another election. One of the biggest risks for the prime minister as he contemplates his fourth run is the apathy that usually sets in party ranks and beyond as the leader's tenure stretches into a decade. So far, the evidence is that Poliev is acting as an effective antidote to that apathy. A word in closing. For months now, Poliev has been single-mindedly pressuring the China interference issue in the Commons. And yet, over all that time, he has not really lifted his narrative above the partisan level. The task finally fell to his predecessor, Aaron O'Toole, who will be retiring at the end of the spring sitting. And what may have been his last address to the House of Commons on Tuesday, O'Toole made a truly compelling case for a public inquiry. Ironically, his speech was grounded in the very kind of security briefing Poliev has steadfastly declined to take by artfully weaving his parliamentary privilege with the national security restrictions that attend information shared by CSIS, O'Toole ended up highlighting both the weaknesses of the liberal case against a public inquiry and the unbearable lightness of his successor's refusal to take stock of all the facts available to him to sustain his critique of the government. In hindsight, Trudeau's Liberals should be thankful that the Conservative Caucus, in its very relative wisdom, decided to dump an adult politician like O'Toole for a petulant one like Polivre. And on to our next article. Theatre Etiquette 101. Nine things that make this critic cringe. As someone who sees upwards of 200 stage shows a year, I obviously love theater, but I also hate it. Let me explain. It's not the shows themselves, writing, acting, directing, design that irritate me. And besides, I usually get to mention those things in reviews. It's the other stuff, from the hassle of trying to find information about a show to brave and cramped lobbies and washings. Worst of all, dealing with fellow audience members. Theater etiquette has made headlines recently, so we all know not to sing along at jukebox musicals or use our phones, unless we're being encouraged to do so. But there are some other elements that are just as bothersome. Here, in no particular order, are some things that can turn this mild-mannered theater fan into a full-on drama queen. Glowing watches. Sure, these days most audience members know enough to stow their muted phones in their purses and their pockets. But what about Fitbits and Apple Watches? There they are, glowing and posting away in the dark, distracting your attention from a show. I don't own one, but apparently there's something called theater mode. Use it. Bad vibes. On a related note, don't put your phone on vibrant mode. Put it on silent. In a small theater, we can all hear it. Hats or powdered up hair. 
As the iconic character Joanne asked in Stephen Sondheim's company, does anyone still wear a hat? Yes, they do. And they're usually sitting in front of me at a show. Please take it off. I promise I won't comment on the bald spot you're trying to cover up. Speaking of hair, stay at the top, not high ponytail, and retro beehive for another occasion. And remember that annoying woman in the giant, few obscuring white dress at the Oscars? Don't be her. A seat is not a coat rack. This is mostly a renter thing, but some audience members shape their big, bulky coats over their chairs. So if you're sitting behind them, as I always seem to be doing, their coat will essentially be draped in front of you, touching your knees. That garment is so precious that you don't want it wrinkled. Pay a couple of bucks and use the coat check. Those excuse me sorry people. Why do people sitting in the middle of the row always arrive late? So those already seated have to stand up to let them through. And why are they often carrying plastic cups of red wine that you know they're going to spill on you in the dark as they repeatedly step on your feet? Shallow rows. I'm of average height, but even I find the seating in most theaters cramped, my knees often jutting up against the seat in front of me, making it even harder for those middle row folks to get by. Couldn't theaters add a bit more space between rows? That way we could all breathe a bit easier. Minding your P's and Q's. Thankfully, several theaters now have built gender neutral washrooms with stalls, but many theaters' men's washrooms still have urinals without partitions between them, which can be awkward. The play I'm seeing is enough, thank you very much. I don't need to watch any unwelcome opening acts. Side note about washroom stalls, why not spring that red equals occupied, green equals free lock to avoid the embarrassing oops of finding someone inside. The obscure laughter. This mostly applies to comedy shows, but it happens at plays too. Some audience member laughs loudly to himself. It's always a dude after a line, signaling to the rest of us that he is a superior, highly educated, cultured person. The worst part, the laughter always sounds fake. The price is wrong. Have you tried to buy theater tickets online lately? Sure, service charges and facility fees are getting out of control. But some websites are so shady and complicated about the range of prices and options available that it seems easier to apply to Nexus than it is to find out how much your tickets are actually going to cost. With all that in mind, enjoy your next show. And on to our next article. We're more worried about crime, but stats reveal who is most at risk of being a victim in Toronto. Several highly publicized attacks in the big smoke lead to widespread panic. Crime becomes a major topic of discussion, and the public demands swift and certain action. In an effort to restore public confidence and public order, lawmakers rush through a variety of short-term draconian measures. That reads like dystopian vision of Toronto's future. But it is, in fact, a portrait of the past, specifically that of the original Big Smoke, London, England in 1744. As, a historian, as historian Richard Ward details, a series of high-profile violent crimes in that year resulted in panic throughout the city, leading to implementation of various unproductive and counterproductive measures. That's worth remembering. As we respond, to a rash of highly publicized random attacks in Toronto. These incidents have convinced many Torontonians that crime is out of control, that things have never been this bad, 
a perception seized upon the ongoing mayority campaign. Torontonians are not alone. According to an April Leisure Opinion survey, fully 65% of Canadians believe crime and violence have gotten worse, with half of those saying it's much worse. As is often the case, the statistics paint a more nuanced and a more complex picture. Statistics Canada points that the most highly publicized violent crime of late, gun crime decreased by 22%, in Toronto between 2020 and 2021. Toronto Police Service data further reveal that gun violence dropped again in 2022 and has continued to decline precipitously this year. Homicides and gun crimes are down. Similarly, the most serious violent crime homicide decreased by 18% between 2021 and 2022 and is down another 18.5% so far this year. You are listening to a reading of articles and features on the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Most Torontonians are then at relatively low risk of experiencing serious violent crime. But that's not to suggest everything is rosy, since the complex portrait that is painted by the statistics has a dark side. Although assaults were steady in 2020 and 2021, they rose by more than 10% last year and increased another 18% over the first five months of 2023. When it comes to violent victimization, Canada's vaunted commitment to equality breaks down. According to Statistics Canada's most recent general social survey, Canadians are anything but equal when it comes to the risk of being assaulted. Those who have experienced homelessness within the past five years are at five times risk of violent victimization, and those with disabilities are three times more likely to suffer a violent event. Canadians with a mental health-related disability are at an even greater risk than those with physical disabilities, with seven in 10 having suffered a physical assault. Disadvantaged are at higher risk of victimization. Childhood maltreatment, including abuse, Neglect and witnessing family violence is also linked with victimization, with people who were physically or sexually abused as children at three times risk of violence. And Canadians with low incomes are twice as likely to be violently victimized as others. Homelessness, mentally ill, and other vulnerable individuals are therefore at considerably higher risk are at considerably higher risk for victimization than others. And this casts a traditional debate between those advocating tough on crime measures and those proposing improved housing and healthcare in very different light. Underlying both of these narratives is the same sinister subtext, one that suggests that disadvantaged, homeless, and mentally ill people are inherently dangerous, that if we just get them under control through draconian measures or through housing, healthcare, and social services, then the rest of us will be safe. In reality, we need homes and health care not because those without them are perpetrators of violence, but because they're the victims of it. Public safety, particularly on the TTC, has been a central issue in Toronto's mayoralty campaign. At a debate this week, Mark Saunders, the former Toronto police chief, ranked it as a number one issue, especially safety on the subway. Brad Bradford said that safety worries are the main reason that people aren't riding transit. 
There have been promises of extra transit staff and special constables deployed on the transit system. Encouragingly, this election campaign has seen some recognition that the solutions must go beyond that. There have been proposals from some candidates for improved health supports and crisis intervention, and there has been a welcome focus on housing affordability. With proposals for more affordable rental housing and targeted help for those without a home. If you are really committed to ensuring the welfare of all Torontonians, not just those who already enjoy relative safety, then we'll do the right thing for the right reason. We'll eschew the panic-informed policies of yesteryear and embrace the evidence-informed policies of today so that everyone can enjoy a safer tomorrow. And on to our next article. Canada is cracking down on taxes. So, why does our national pension plan pay less than 2%? When it comes to performance, Canada's National Pension Fund rightfully boasts impressive results. Over the past decade, the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, the CPPIB, achieved an annual rate return of 10% on our CPP fund, one of the highest rates among global pension funds. But those stellar results rely in part on a questionable practice, tax avoidance. CPPIB manages assets worth of $570 billion, of which only a small part, about 14%, is involved domestically. On its Canadian investments, it is exempt by law from paying taxes. But on its international investments, where taxes are due, CPPIB works very hard to minimize tax payments. CPPIB is so adept at using legal strategies to minimize taxes that over the past year, fiscal 2023, its total tax bill was a mere $186 million on gross income of $15.6 billion, an effective tax rate of just 1.2%. To help achieve this, CPPIB has established a vast network of at least 30 subsidiaries in the Cayman Islands, the tax haven capital of the world. For D.T. Cochrane, an economist with Canadians for Tax Fairness, an Ottawa-based nonprofit group, the use of offshore tax havens is deeply worrisome. My instinct is that when you start to see these complex ownership structures, it's just an immediate red flag, he tells me. Ironically, this is all done while Canada's finance minister, who heads up the legal owner of CPPIB, says that government is serious about cracking down on the loopholes that allow tax avoidance. Brigitte Lepin, professor of taxation at Université du Québec en Ottawa and one of the most influential tax experts in the world, acknowledges the big gap between CPPIB's use of tax havens and the official stance of the Canadian government. The Canadian government supports the global tax reform, of which one of its objectives is to impose limits on the use of tax havens by companies. How can we explain and demand from Canadians and Canadian businesses to respect the global tax reform if CPP seems to be using tax havens without any limit, she wrote in an email. When asked about the conflict, Freelance Press Secretary referred all questions to the CPPIB. The CPP is guided by an independent board of directors and operates at arm's length from the federal government. She said, as such, they are best placed to provide further comment. When contacted by the Star, 
Michelle Leduc, CPPIB's Global Head of Public Affairs and Communications, said the CPPIB maintains there is nothing wrong with using legal means to minimize the taxes paid on international investments. We are unapologetic about our prudent tax planning, he wrote in an email. Leduc said CPPIB operates with the goal of helping our hardworking contributors and beneficiaries achieve lifetime financial security, and added that very few national retirement funds are solvent over the long haul. But what about the ethics of using offshore tax havens and other strategies to reduce taxes to the point where they are much lower than those paid by most Canadian citizens and companies? The Duke argues that the CPPIB is competing for deals against trillion-dollar behemoths, other large sovereign wealth and pension funds, and needs to use every tool at its disposal. Every dollar in foreign taxes we pay comes at the expense of returns we generate for our 21 million contributors and beneficiaries. The notion of us voluntarily keeping one hand tied behind our back is a non-starter and we have full confidence. Canadians support us in the effort, he adds. I have three comments on that. First, the CPPIB is arguably one of the more aggressive wealth funds when it comes to tax avoidance. Just because its international tax planning is legal doesn't mean it's ethical. Quebec's pension plan, Caisse de dépôt en placement du Québec, which is similar in size, it manages $402 billion in assets, has no subsidiaries and tax havens at all. And other Canadian pension funds, such as PSP Investments and the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, use tax havens on a much smaller scale. Second, Canada is one of the richest countries in the world. At least some of the foreign tax CPPIB avoids paying would have gone to much poorer countries such as India and Brazil where it has massive investments. Lastly, how can CPPIB have full confidence that Canadians support its tax avoidance policies? After all, they are well hidden, never shared with contributors and beneficiaries and are rarely if ever publicly discussed. CPPIB claims that it is a highly transparent organization. Its website reads, We believe transparency is the foundation of trust with our stakeholders, but it discloses none of its complex financial structure to its 21 million contributors and beneficiaries on its financial reports. In my opinion, while the CPPIB's genuine commitment to fulfilling its mandate to create value for workers over the long run is appreciated, its obsession with achieving ever higher returns has caused it to lose its ethical compass. Higher returns are important, but at what cost? There is always a trade-off and CPPIP's returns doesn't necessarily have to be as high as they are. According to the most recent actuarial report on the Canadian Pension Plan, if CPPIB's average annual rate of return for the next 75 years was 5.75%, much lower than the 10% it has made over the past decade, it would still be well-funded until the end of the century. As things stand now, there is considerable inconsistency even hypocrisy between Canada's 
official call to crack down on loopholes that allow tax avoidance and the way its national pension fund operates. Freeland should not hide behind the government that the CPP-IB operates at an arm's length from the government. She needs to send a clear message that CPP-IB should pay its fair share of taxes, just as you and I and most Canadian corporations are expected to do. Amir Barnia is an associate professor of finance at HEC Montreal and a freelance contributing columnist for The Star. And on to our next article. Travel is back and prices are up. Experts share five ways to save money on your vacation this summer. The pandemic is over, travel is back, and prices are up. Airfare to Europe this summer is the highest it's been in more than five years. Trips to Europe are averaging over 1,100 US dollars per ticket, and trips to Asia average over 1,800 per ticket. If you're heading out of town soon, here's some expert advice that you should consider before you book. Watch flights early and use price monitoring. Apps and websites like Hopper, Kayak, Google Flights, or Expedia can help travelers find the best deal. Prices are constantly changing. Haley Berg, the economist at Hopper said, that's why we really encourage travelers to start planning early and use a price monitoring tool. Laura Lindsay, Director of Consumer Public Relations and Communications at Skyscanner, said shopping around with different airlines and airports could get travelers more bang for their buck, but it comes at the price of loyalty points or miles with your favorite airline. Flexibility will help cut costs. If you can manage to do the majority of your trip on a weekday, it will pay off. Thursdays and Fridays are the most popular departure dates, Berg said, especially for European trips. If you're flying to Europe this summer and you fly on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, you're going to save an average on a peak weekend of $170 per ticket just by going early in the week, Berg said. The same goes for your hotel stay, she said. Staying at a hotel on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday night is significantly cheaper than staying through the weekend. Some hotels charge a 25% premium to stay on a Saturday night. She said some hotels in Las Vegas have an 80% premium for Saturdays, and in Miami it's over 100%. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Number three, bring hand luggage only if possible. Travel lightly if you can. With how crowded the airports are during the summer travel season, checked luggage could hold you up to getting to your destination. We saw disasters with checked baggage last year and we are expecting disruption this year. So if you can carry everything on, it might save you a headache, Berg said. Shipco estimates that passengers will wait anywhere from 15 to 50 minutes after a flight just to get their bags. Be prepared for a delay if you decide to travel with multiple pieces of luggage. During Southwest Airlines operational disruption in de December, Airports across the country became depositories for thousands of suitcases, backpacks, and duffel bags. Number four, arrive early on peak summer days. Airports will be busy this summer. Lindsay said to stay informed and watch social media for updates on security lines and crowded airports. Some airports will tell you to arrive early because of their security lines, Lindsay said. 
They don't have extra capacity to house people arriving three hours early. If everyone arrived three hours early, you've suddenly got extra passengers in the airport that they can't accommodate. It may not matter how many times you look or what day you book. There are a few myths that people tend to believe, like booking on Tuesdays or booking in the early hours of the morning. The reality is that doesn't matter what day or time you book or how often you click on a certain flight. The reality is it's just how volatile airfare pricing is because of the way the industry works and how airlines are doing the pricing and the way they manage pricing, Burke said. She said airlines oftentimes don't know if a person is logged into their loyalty account when they are searching for flights. The systems focus on how full is the plane, how many tickets have been sold, and even compare the same flight to a week or more ago. She said sometimes carriers will place airfares into pricing buckets. If you are searching for a trip and see one price and then you come back three hours later and you see a completely different price, sometimes it's higher and sometimes lower, Burke said. It can be because maybe two people booked the flight and the fare bucket closed. Those prices aren't available anymore and these prices are available. And in general, Burke said, try to be the first flight out. Travelers on the first flight are less likely to get delayed and cancelled from the day's legs of travel. The Dallas Morning News. And on to our next article. Letter from Ukraine, prosthetic limbs, a symbol, and unbroken spirit. A young man in a military uniform caught my attention in the park. He sat down on the bench, rolled up his pants, and adjusted his prosthesis. A little boy who was passing by with his mother ran up to the soldier. How Dimon thanked him for defending Ukraine. It was so touching. Yes, many Ukrainians now need limbs. It sounds terrible. In the streets of our city, it is increasingly possible to meet men with prosthesis. They don't look like people with limited physical capabilities to us. They are more like superheroes with steel limbs. But I am aware of the difficult path they went through, both physically and psychologically, before going out for a walk. Mines and explosive injuries are the most common reason why military personnel lose their upper or lower limbs. According to preliminary calculations by experts, more than 5,000 Ukrainians need prosthetics and rehabilitation due to Russia's war against Ukraine. My neighbor, Yaroslav, has been at the front since the first day of the war. He said that soldiers are most afraid of losing their hands and eyes. We don't worry so much about our legs, he jokes. Most often, people need uh, prosthesis of the lower limbs. 60-65% to 65 of amputations in the world concern legs. However, many hand prostheses are more technologically complex. Thanks to modern technology, the wounded can choose the necessary type of prosthesis, from mechanical upper limbs to innovative bionic ones. The Esperhand, a product of the Ukrainian startup Esper Bionics, was included in the 200 world of leading innovations of 2022. The Esperhand is a bionic hand prosthesis that helps people with difficult physiological differences to live a full life. Moreover, the Esper hand is able to give a person even better physical capabilities, such as to lift heavy things without fatigue in the arm muscles. A bionic hand can perform the same functions as a biological one, pick up objects, do sports and household chores. A person is able to work in a laboratory, at a computer, use a telephone and other gadgets. There was a sudden need for rehabilitation centers in Ukraine. After all, people need help here and now. Now it is most important for Ukraine to train a sufficient number of specialists who would have the necessary qualifications and provide high quality prosthetics. Foreign specialists come here, help Ukrainian specialists to make prosthetics correctly, increase their qualification level, 
but also improve their professionalism by working with complex cases. Not so long ago, a modern rehabilitation national center, Unbroken, was opened in Lviv. It's a unique place where adults and children affected by the war receive comprehensive, qualified medical care. Among the areas of work of the center are reconstructive surgery, orthopedics, and prosthetics. Since the beginning of the full-scale invasion, more than 11,000 wounded Ukrainians, including 350 children, have been treated here. The most difficult is to write about children's prosthetics. Children often become victims of mine explosions. Russian soldiers often leave unpleasant surprises in the occupied territories. On Ukrainian TV and radio, we often hear messages about not touching strange objects or suspicious toys. They can be mines. But childish curiosity often leads to tra tragic consequences. The main difficulty in children's prosthetics, which applies to absolutely all types of prosthetic products, is the rapid growth of the child. In this regard, prosthesis have to be changed quite often until the end of the phase of active growth on average once a year. Soldiers and civilians with severe injuries also need psychological rehabilitation. My friend Katerina teaches English at the university. She works during the day and volunteers in the evening. Katyurna is a translator at online meetings between Dutch psychologists and Ukrainian soldiers. After the first consultations, I just sobbed for half the night. I felt all the horror of the war through the eyes of the soldiers. I tried to be the gate through which all these terrible stories pass. However, every word of the warrior remained in my heart, Kate told me. To be honest, all Ukrainians need psychological support. For the past two weeks, Russia has been shelling Ukrainian cities every night. Thanks to our Western partners, we have modern air defense systems. Missiles rarely reach their targets, but debris from downed missiles also does a lot of damage. Sometimes I pretend there's no war, that it is far away, it is not mine. I hide in the shell of my everyday affairs. I'm often ashamed of it. In such way, I restore my psychological balance. We are all tired of war, but I am not afraid of this fatigue. My biggest fear is that the world will get tired of our war and will perceive it as something everyday and normal. Julia Marik lives in ivano frankivsk Ukraine, and is a graduate of Vassil Stefanik Precarpathian National University. And on to our next article. This Toronto Entrepreneur's Inspo a shampoo good enough for her cockapoo. Dog ornos are flooding Toronto's dog parks with their furry friends, but not all of them are enjoying the summer-like weather. Ticks, dirt, fleas, and pollen can make even the most adventurous pup irritable. Until fairly recently, the solution was a hose down in the yard, but the dog care market is starting to catch up with a dizzying array of shampoos, conditioners, and skincare products available to their human parents. One Toronto entrepreneur, Carolyn Chen, has entered the game, switching from selling her own human beauty products to canine ones. Her rationale isn't all that different from the philosophy of small-scale ethical beauty companies. People want skin and hair care products that are clearly labeled and won't harm them. Except, of course, Chen's target market is dogs.
more specifically dogs with a sensitive skin who haven't had a great experience with more traditional shampoos. Her company is quite small, a team of three, with a network of consultants and outside manufacturers. But Chen says Dandelion is making inroads among young dog owners. Chen spoke to the star from Toronto. What did creating skincare products for human teach you about creating products for pets? What I've realized being in the human personal care and beauty world is that humans are getting really smart about what we're putting on our own skin and in our bodies. So ingredient transparency is incredibly important along with a genuine trust and connection with the brands you're looking for. I'm looking to really translate those same things into dog care products. One of the most shocking things I found about dog care products is that there is just not the same level of regulation and ingredient transparency. For human beauty products, both medicated and non-medicated, you have to fully disclose the ingredients, but you don't need to disclose any ingredients for non-medicated dog care products. Do you think part of the reason for that lack of disclosure is because the pet care industry is still fairly new? I think that the pet care industry is definitely playing a lot of catch up with the rise of millennial dog parents, a new generation of dog parents who are becoming really smart and educated about what we're putting in food and beauty products. I think with that will come a change in regulations around pet care as well. With Dandelion, we're definitely trying to lead the way to have a conversation with ingredient transparency and really educating dog parents about the importance of having a grooming routine and what to look for in dog care products. Are there any scents that dogs really hate or don't do well on dog skin, but that owners like to see in their dog shampoo? We are really focused on creating dog grooming essentials that are designed to take care of extra itchy, sensitive, and easily irritated skin. The reason why is because my own dog, Mocha. She has incredibly itchy skin, and itchy skin is the number one reason for vet visits. Our entire approach to formulation is about removing all of the harsh and irritating ingredients. That includes artificial fragrances, dyes, and essential oils. Of course, our products are going to have a kind of natural scent. If you're cleaning your dog regularly, grooming them, and bathing them, they should end up smelling good. Not like a wet dog smell, but one with no added fragrances that might irritate their skin or noses. If I was to use your dog shampoo on myself, would it function differently from regular shampoo? I used the product on myself during the testing process. I tested on myself before testing Mocha. Our ingredients are really soothing, hydrating, great for people with scalp issues as well. My fiance frequently asks me if he can use Mocha's products on his hair. The only difference between our products and human products is the pH level. Dog skin is about 6.5 to 7.5. Human skin, I believe, is an average of 4.7 pH. If you're using products that are the wrong pH level, it might cause a bit of irritation and discomfort. That's why we don't recommend using dog products as a replacement to your human ones. What prompted you to test your products on yourself? I wanted to get a good feel for the consistency and for the rinsing products on my own hair and whether it left a greasy feeling. If there was something really alarming, I'm able to pinpoint it. Mocha wouldn't have any way of relaying that information. Are your products tough enough to handle dogs with really thick fur or long fur coats? I'm thinking of a breed like the Newfoundland Lab. 
my biggest frustration with a lot of dog grooming products is that I would have to spend forever in the back of the shower rinsing the product out because so much of that product is getting stuck in their hair. Dogs with really dense coats are going to have a lot of stuck product. When I thought about product development, I wanted to create a slightly thinner formulation that makes lathering and spreading the product throughout the coat super easy. One of the things I found with Mocha was when I was using other dog hair products, I would take it out of the shower, I would hear the sound of crinkling shampoo and realize that I hadn't rinsed all of the product out. That was definitely a part of the grooming routine that we wanted to reduce. With our formulation, we have thought about the entire process of using it. Other traditional human shampoo brands are releasing their own dog-related products. How do you compete with a brand that may already have loyal human customers? Even though there may be great brands in the human space, I don't think that they're talking to dog parents the same way we are. Before I launched any product, I chatted with more than a hundred dog parents. We're building genuine, authentic connections with them and really listening to all of the problems they face with dog grooming. We work with a vet dermatologist to vet our ingredient lists, chat about formulations, and chat about skin problems. We can bring dog parents along behind the scenes into product development so that dog parents feel a level of connection to the brand and trustworthy ingredients and formulations that we're putting out. Compared to a human shampoo line, dog shampoo line is niche. How did Dandelion's business model compare to your past work on human products? It's more niche, but definitely more focused. There's a lot of innovation that's taken place in dog food and dog treats, but when it comes to the overall, overall well-being of dogs, the grooming category hasn't had any disruption. So, so although it is a more niche category, I would say that we are doing things in the category that are very different from what a lot of brands have traditionally been doing. The human beauty industry is a bigger category, but there are so many different players doing I would say very similar things in that category right now. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. What was it like trying to convince investors that they should throw money at a dog shampoo line? We are actually 100% bootstrapped. We really want to be smart about how we think about investors and how that lines up with our growth objectives. We are profitable but we aren't currently looking to raise at the moment, but it is something we're thinking about as we look at growing our retail distribution. A strategic partner might be beneficial for us as we think about bringing on more money to help us with inventory or marketing or leverage their expertise in other areas. Dog owners in Toronto hate excessive salting on roads in the winter because of what does to pause. Any thoughts on how to prevent or to mitigate it? Dog's paws get exposed to many of the elements. Mocha constantly bites and itches her paws, especially during allergy season. All of the pollen accumulating on her paws causes a lot of irritation. Our best seller is our Clean Paws No Rinse Foaming Cleanser, a super easy way for dog parents to clean a dog's paws after every single walk. We created it with soft silicone bristles, which has a built-in brush, and the product foams out through the bristles. This will help remove all the salt buildup in the winter time. It removes all of the mud from spring. We also formulated it to be hydrating on the paws so it won't dry them out. 
I think one of the concerns that dog parents have with using dog wash product is that it might strip the dog's skin of its natural oils. Our product actually leaves paws feeling a bit softer because we use lightweight, nourishing plant oils like broccoli seed oil. For those of us who are cat people or own other animals, are you thinking of launching products for them? Right now, we really want to be focused with building out our product assortment for dogs. We've had a lot of cat parents reach out to us asking if they can use this product for cats. I'm not super knowledgeable about cat grooming, but from what I've heard from friends is that cats don't need to be groomed as often as dogs because they groom themselves a lot. For us, it's probably smarter to stay focused on dog grooming in the short term because there's a lot more grooming involved. Then in the future, we might think about how our products might be suitable for cats once we're able to chat with more cat parents. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. And on to our next article. 700 more firefighters coming to Canada, Minister expects fire warnings for another four to five weeks. Almost 700 firefighters from South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States are set to arrive in Canada over the next two weeks and to help with the unusually severe start to the wildfire season. There are already more than 500 international firefighters. Incident commanders and other workers in Alberta and another 101 arrived from the U.S. Friday. Alberta has been battling multiple severe fires since early May, and there are still 63 fires burning, 18 of them out of control. The Canada Inter Interagency Forest Fire Centre reported that as of Friday afternoon, there were 324 fires burning across the country and that 167 are considered out of control. That includes the Tantalon fire near Halifax that has destroyed or damaged 151 homes so far. That's a big jump from Thursday when the agency reported 209 fires, with 87 out of control. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair said Friday that cooler weather is expected in Western Canada and rain in Nova Scotia, which will help. But the severe fire warnings are likely to continue in most provinces for another four to five weeks at least. The situation remains severe across the country, Blair said. We are hopeful that improving weather conditions and that rain will assist in the firefighting efforts, but there's still a great deal of work that needs to be done. Thus far, more than 96% of the burned land was in Western Canada and the Northwest Territories. But last weekend, the situation became more severe in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, and now parts of Ontario and Quebec are also burning. There are a number of significant over 100 wildfires that have now popped up in Quebec, and some of them are out of control and quite serious. Blair said. The Canada Interagency Forest Fire Center database added 113 fires in Quebec since Thursday, and 76 of them are classified as being out of control. The Canadian Armed Forces deployed several hundred troops to Alberta to help in May and is training more to help in Nova Scotia now. Blair said. The military and the Canadian Coast Guard is also helping with equipment, he said. 
The number of fires, their size, and severity, as well as the number of places affected, are straining CANDA's resources. So, the CANDA Interagency Forest Fire Center has requested help from international partners. Since the season began, 443 firefighters and other workers from Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. have flown to CANDA to help, mostly in Alberta. Since the season began, some have gone to Northwest Territories and a small number have landed in Nova Scotia. Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. are sending more firefighters in the coming days, Blair said. Most, again, are heading to Alberta, but some will fly to Nova Scotia. As well, six water bombers from Montana are expected to arrive in Nova Scotia to help on Friday and Saturday after getting clearance to use the airstrip at Canadian Armed Forces Base Greenwood. The South African High Commission in Ottawa said Friday 200 firefighters and 15 managers would leave South Africa Saturday, and they are heading to Alberta for 35 days. Another 200 firefighters and 13 managers are set to follow on June the 10th. And on to our next article. Your relationship with your car will change. Tech will change what vehicles are, what they can do. Wood laminate floors are an unusual style choice in a car, but peer through one of the futuristically backward opening doors on Project Arrow, the first all-Canadian zero-emissions concept vehicle, and there they are. Tastefully minimalist and sustainably sourced, the flooring is the kind of finish a condo realtor would be sure to point out. They're supposed to be reminiscent of a basketball court and a nod to our country's role in creating that sport. But they carry another message. This car is different. Project Arrow is different because the car as we know it, internal combustion engine, steering wheel, and an excess of cup holders is coming to an end. While public debate around electric vehicles has been dominated by their costs, their climate benefits and geopolitical maneuverings to secure supplies of the rare materials needed to build them, there are countless other implications that they've barely begun to grapple with. Cars have dominated every aspect of public and private life, writes Brian Appleyard in his recent book, The Car, The Rise and Fall of the Machine That Made the Modern World. We've reshaped our cities around them and built our lives on the ease and mobility they provide. And Appleyard note, we also treat them as judgment-free zones. We can belt out a tune like nobody's watching. Some of this will survive the transition, but much else about how we relate to our cars will need to be rethought. As new technologies start to leave a test track and make their way into the roads, the extent to which we will need to adjust our expectations of what cars do is becoming clear. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 3rd issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.